all good. Uh, all right, would you turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2? I'm going to pick up today where Jody Green left off last week, and before we get there, I just want to start this morning with some uh, teaching on just like Bible reading, uh, Bible study, how do we come to the scripture, uh, what does it look like to read it, study it, find application for my life uh, today. Uh, the first kind of third of the message today is going to feel a little seminary-ish. So turn on your thinking caps, get your pens out and ready. Uh, I think this is, um, it's a little seminary-ish, but I do think it will be beneficial for everyone uh, in the room. Uh, first and foremost, I just want to tell you that Two Rivers, we have a very high view of Scripture. We believe that God's Word is authoritative for life and faith uh, in our lives. Uh, and so we come to the Scriptures humbly, believing that it, in its original manuscripts, it is, it is God's perfect Word, it is His infallible Word of God to us from God himself. Three points on that. The miracle of God's word. Uh, the miracle of God's word through men and women. Uh, that should say 2 Peter. That's my fault. It's 2 Peter 1.21. 2 Peter 1.21 is the verse there, which says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A prophet is someone who speaks to the people of God on behalf of God. And so when we come to the scripture, the prophetic word of God to us, God has given us his word. The Holy Spirit has given his word through men and women who prophetically have given us the scripture, the miracle of God's word through men and women. God's word is living and active, uh, not merely uh, words on a page. Uh, but life and breath to our souls. Um, Hebrews 4, verse 2, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, it makes right judgment. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. In other words, the word of God leads us and guides us. It is a, a light to our, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Any Amy Grant people in the room? Yeah. The older generation, yeah, thy word is a lamp. Excuse me. I digress. I digress. Go look it up. You're going to love it. Thirdly, we come to God's word humbly, knowing that it is useful profitable for us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, training us in righteousness, so that the man and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We come to it humbly to receive its leadership in our lives. When we uh, come to the scriptures, there are important um, uh, interpretive um, standards, guides for us when we come to the scripture and to read it, study it, make application in our lives. And um, there are some fancy words for this that we learn in seminary. 
uh, so that we aren't misinterpreting it and making the scripture say kind of whatever we want it to say. And here are some uh, fancy seminary type words that I want to teach you this morning. Uh, what is biblical exegesis? What is eisegesis? What is biblical hermeneutics? Um, what is exegesis? It literally means to lead out of. You start here and it leads out of there for our lives. Exegesis is the exposition or the explanation of a text based on careful, objective analysis. We take into account uh, historical context, grammatical context. Um, who wrote it? Who did the person write it to? What was happening in, in that culture when it was written? We, we, we look at all of those Things and then we are led to conclusions by following the text. That is, that is exegesis. Eisegesis literally means to lead into. I have some thoughts. I got some stuff that I'm thinking about that I like, and I'm going to find a way to make the scripture say that. And so it's leading into the text. Eisegesis, uh, the interpretation of a passage based on more of a subjective or non analytical reading, the interpreter injects his or her own ideas, making it mean whatever he or she wants. Obviously, we are uh, advocating, I am contending with you for biblical exegesis and not eisegesis when we come to the scriptures, because only exegesis does justice to the text. Exegesis leads us to agree with the Bible, even if the Bible, the teaching of God's word, is rebuking us, correcting us, training us, and that feels uncomfortable, that we humbly submit ourselves to the leadership of God's word in our lives. Uh, exegesis leads us to agree with the Bible. Eisegesis forces the Bible to agree with me. What is biblical hermeneutics? From the Greek word meaning interpret. Um, the movement from exegesis to hermeneutics, interpreting it, is simply this. What was said and written then and there, then and there, what does that mean for me here and now? How am I supposed to bring application, relevancy to the text that has a historical context, a grammatical, what, what kind of genre was it? Was this an epistle? Was, is this poetry uh, like Proverbs? Is this, is this uh, an, uh, a historical narrative, First and Second Kings? Is this apocalyptic like Daniel, like uh, the book of Revelation, or as my granny used to say, the Revelations? I get a chuckle every time I quote my granny on that. Uh, hermeneutics, moving us. From then and there to here and now. Now, when we think about hermeneutics, there are a couple of really, really important things. We are reading, studying the Bible, and we're trying to interpret this for my life today. Two really, really important um, kind of guides around biblical hermeneutics. And it's this. You, you hear me say this all the time. Context is king. Passages must be interpreted historically, grammatically, contextually. I'm going to make a, a, a cheesy kind of cheesy statement right now. You've heard me say this before. Uh, it is cheesy. I'm just going to say that. I confess, confess before you, but you won't, you won't forget it. You won't forget it. If you take the text 
from the context, all you're left with is a con. We have to read the scripture within the context, okay? Didn't get any laughs on that. It's okay. It's okay. I'm just going to keep, keep going. But I hope, you won't for, I hope you won't forget that. And secondly, scripture interprets scripture, and it does not contradict itself because it is the word of God to us. So when we come to a passage like today, at first reading, it's like, oh, that's difficult, or mm, that's confusing. What do we do? What do we do as a Bible reader, a studier? We, we understand context, and we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture to figure out how to move this from exegesis to hermeneutics. Y'all with me? Okay, here is a process. Here is a good Bible study process that you can take a picture of this or you can write this down. And we're actually going to do this work as I was preparing. And oftentimes when I'm preparing notes to, to teach and speak with you on Sunday mornings, I will go through this process almost every, every week. I spend Wednesday mornings in my study, studying, uh, learning, uh, listening, reading, writing notes. And then on Fridays, I write. And I will go through this process every single week. And so I want to share it with you. Observation, what does the passage say? What does it say? What is it saying? Not, not, not what is it saying to me. I'm not asking that question. I'm asking what does it say in its original context. Context is king. Who, was, who wrote it? Who did, who did they write it to? What is the genre? What does the text say? Context. Observation. Correlation. How does this passage relate to anything else that I may have heard about or read about in the Bible? Like, especially if I have, if it feels difficult or I have some questions about it, where else could I go in the scripture? Because this is the word of God, the words of God, that I can have scripture interpret scripture for me when I feel confused or I have questions about a passage. Are you guys with me right now? Seminarius, I know, I know. I'm going to start preaching in a minute, okay? All right, so correlation, how does the passage relate to the rest of the Bible? And then interpretation, what does the passage mean for me today? Not what does it mean to, for me, I'm not, I'm not putting my own thoughts and what culture is saying into what, but how do I take what was written then and there to here and now application, how should this passage affect my life? Why am I spending so much time on this? Well, first and foremost, it's important for you to know in general as readers and studiers of the Bible. That's just, this is just important things to know and learn. Secondly, today's text is challenging, and it is full of context and first century Ephesus. Our passage today has been used um, to oppress and silence women for generations on generations on generations. And at first read, Paul comes across, he does, at first read, and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll hold this together. He comes across as, you're like, is he a chauvinist? What is going on here? When in reality, because Paul is a follower of Jesus, he champions women and empowers them over and over and over and over and over again in gospel ministry. So I want us to look at the context closely. Uh, the Ephesus church, Paul's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, He's pastoring and leading in Ephesus, and the church 
was in a situation of terminal crisis. It had just gotten started. Paul had just planted the church, and the church was in trouble. And so Paul puts measures in place to help save this particular church in Ephesus with a lot of contact from literal destruction. And so uh, that's, that's what we're going to go. Uh, I will say to you as we get into this today, uh, this, this passage, uh, it, it engages the, the question around women in ministry, women teaching. And so I just want to say um, up front before we get into this, uh, this particular uh, conversation around theology and what Paul is saying here is not core Christian doctrine. This is a, a secondary or tertiary matter uh, around unity together and the life together as a church. Uh, I, I certainly have a conviction and a perspective, which you'll hear, um, but there are people that disagree with me on this. Uh, and so I just want to say that out loud humbly, but I'm going to be teaching through the lens at which the Lord has led me and the conviction of our leadership team here at our church will be the perspective that I'm coming from uh, this morning. And so I say that humbly and invite you just to consider, uh, but not, not everybody is going to agree uh, with, what, uh, with where I land today. And, that, and that's, that's okay. Uh, but I want to teach it uh, how the Lord has led me to understand um, these matters today. So we're gonna, I'm going to pick up where Jody uh, left off last week, and I'm just going to read the passage, First um, Timothy chapter two, verses eight and twelve. Okay, Paul says to Timothy, "I want men everywhere. I want all the men everywhere. Here it is: to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. That is a that's that's exhortive. That's a command." So if you're in first century Ephesus and you are praying publicly, what is, what is the command from Paul to Timothy that you must do? No more praying with the hands in the pockets. I don't understand all the context of this. But I'm just saying the exhortation is pretty clear. And no more anger and disputing, fellas. If your anger, if you, if you like have anger or you're disputing, like don't, don't get up and pray in front of everybody. Like, we're praying without anger or disputing, okay? So he says that to the men first. That's what, he, that's what he says about the men. Verse nine, I also want women to dress modestly with decency, propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet. This is our passage for the morning. Ladies, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> you got some questions? Anybody got questions in here? No? Okay, we're done. All right, all right. Worship, no. I got questions. Anybody else got questions? Yeah, I got questions. We need to do some observing. We need to do some correlating, right? We need to ask some questions because, man, okay, that's challenging for me. What is going on here? Observation number one, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus is breaking in into the world. 
and it has come to Ephesus. Paul had already been there to plant a church, and his effectiveness in spreading the gospel there meant people were turning away from a polytheistic, pagan culture. Specifically, there was a cult in Ephesus, and this cult permeated every area of life in that culture, and it was the cult of Artemis, the goddess of Diana, or in Greek, Artemis, and she was the goddess of fertility. So they were leaving these cults, specifically the cult of Artemis, and they were converting to Christianity. Now, question. Many new believers have found it difficult to quickly and completely let go of long-held behaviors and beliefs when they come to Jesus. Would you agree with that statement? Just put myself at the front of the line. I just put myself at the front of the line. Sanctification is a process. It's not instantaneous. Spiritual growth is a process, right? Do we agree with that? So there were things in the process that was happening for new, covenant, new converts, men and women in Ephesus who were leaving pagan polytheistic cults, specifically the cult of Artemis. That's observation number one. Observation number two is you might not know this, but you can do the study on this and, and read history. Women ran the cult of Artemis. Men played, if they played any role at all, it was a subservient role. So we think about a lot of the Old Testament passages when women were under patriarchal oppression that women faced in the Old Covenant. Uh, in the city of Ephesus in the first century, it was just the opposite, which is sometimes hard for us to get our minds around a little bit. Um, it was matriarchal, and it was ritualistic prostitution. And we know this from chapter one, one of the main issues that Paul was leading Timothy to fight against was false teaching. False teaching. People needed to learn. They needed to learn the truth that sets them free. So what I will tell you is this. What Paul is writing both to the men and the women, men, no more anger disputing, men and the women, it was countercultural for both of them, he is helping create order and honor in the gathering of God's newest converts. And there were cultural strongholds that these people needed freedom from. Freedom from anger, freedom from disputing, freedom from like clamoring for authority and leadership, um, freedom from their cults and their practices and all those things that they had grown up with. And a context question, you know, when I read that passage, I'm like, oh man, I got questions. You got questions? Here's, here, this is my question. This may be your question. A context question about this passage is this. Is everything that Paul tells Timothy here timeless? In other words, is, it, is what we're reading, is it timeless and prescriptive for all time in every church everywhere? Or, or is, it, is it descriptive to what's happening specifically with Timothy, with this church in first century uh, Ephesus around uh, the teaching ministry of women in the church there. That's an important question. That's an important question to ask. I did some reading this week on some scholarly debate uh, on that question. Uh, and if you land, if your biblical hermeneutic or your theology is that, um, that this is timeless, prescriptive for all time, 
and that women shouldn't be allowed to stand up here in this pulpit and teach God's word. If that's where you land, uh, there's a couple of camps, uh, and one of them is this. Women can teach, but just not the men, okay? So, which is an interesting place to land in that perspective, because that's actually not what Paul says. Um, it, it leaves the context, and it leaves lots of other questions. Well, can they teach boys in Sunday school, or they just, can they just teach, like, women only, or, like, what is that? What does that look? I mean, we're, we're, just, we're left to kind of just come up with our own ideas. But there, there's a scholarly camp that lands there. Um, I, I, in my opinion, I humbly don't embrace that. The other camp is this. Women can teach no one, period. Which is precisely what the text says. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And so that camp is like no teaching at all. And I go, man, what is going on in Ephesus that Paul would place this strong restriction on women teaching? Um, Because in so many other places in his writings, he celebrates women speaking, teaching, and leading. What do we do? What do we do when we come to this text and we read it? Well, what are the two biblical hermeneutic interpretive rules? Context is king. Scripture interprets. So what are we going to do? Context is king. Scripture interprets. Scripture. That's what I want us to do. Uh, Because if you are studied on the life and the character of Paul... You understand right away that this statement is a bit of an anomaly for him. Because he greatly esteemed and empowered women just like Jesus. So we've done some observation. Now I want to do some correlation. Let's start with Jesus. In the ministry of Jesus, you read the, you, you read the Gospels. Jesus gave women unheard of, unheard of, privileged opportunities in first century Judaism as a Jewish rabbi. Let me just share a few things. All this is right out of scripture. The first Samaritan convert was a woman. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Do you know that Jewish law prohibited Jewish people from speaking to Samaritans? So Jesus is speaking as a rabbi, he's speaking to a Samaritan, and he's speaking to a woman. This is unheard of. To the degree that when the disciples come back to that well, they're thinking these thoughts, and John gives us privy to what they were thinking, and they literally were going, what is he doing right now? What is happening? Read it, John chapter 4, woman at the well. As a Jewish teacher, Jesus isn't supposed to talk with a Samaritan or a woman, but he does. This Samaritan woman was also the first missionary of the new covenant because what Jesus told her, told her to do is this, go, go and share your testimony. And she did. And many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's 
testimony. What do you have to do to share a testimony? You have to what? Speak. I don't think Jesus told the woman at the well to go back to her hometown. What's the game called where you, what's that? What charades. He didn't tell her to go play charades. He said, go share, go share. And she did. The first Samaritan convert was a woman. The first Gentile convert was a woman. Matthew 15, Canaanite woman. Jesus said, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. The first teaching on the resurrection was to Martha, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, that story, John chapter 11, Jesus' famous line, Jesus told her, because she was like, if you would have only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where have you been? Remember the story? And then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will never die. Remember that story? Yep. The first to witness the resurrection of Jesus was who? Mary Magdalene, John chapter 20. Jesus appears alive to Mary Magdalene. And the first witness to the resurrection to others was Mary Magdalene. Go and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. So just some scripture interpreting scripture, just some correlation in the ministry of Jesus. Let's look at Paul. Here's some really important things that Paul said, had already said in relation uh, to women before he wrote this letter to Timothy. Uh, when he references teaching ministry, uh, you can write this down, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, he references teaching ministry. The Greek word is didasko, which means to teach, okay? And he references teaching ministry in all three contexts. None exclude women. None are gender specific. None exclude women. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, he's writing to the church in Colossae, and he's like, as God's chosen people, men and women, and he lists all these things, he says in Colossians 3, 16, teach and admonish one another. Teach and admonish one another. Philippians 4, he gives a shout out to two women, Eodia and Syntyche. And you can look up that in Philippians 4. I just would like to say, there's a lot of babies being born at Two Rivers, like Eodia and Syntyche. We should bring that back, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But he says about Eodia and Syntyche, I literally, you guys, I had to listen to their words pronounced like four or five times on like Wednesday, so I'd get it right. And then this morning, I'm like, how are their names pronounced again? So this morning... I'm, I'm usually at a coffee shop about 6.30. I'm like listening to it. I'm like, Iodia and Syntyche. He says, help these women who have contended at my side. Not behind me. Next to me. 1 Corinthians 11, women in the church were allowed to prophesy. Romans 16 Paul in his greetings to the church, greet Phoebe, a servant and a deacon of the church. A female deacon? Phoebe was. 
Deacon just means servant. That's all it means. Deacon, deaconess, servant. <laughs> Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. Priscilla and Aquila, they were a husband-wife team. They were missionary partners with Paul. And they went on him. And they were from Corinth, and they helped him establish ministry in Corinth. And then Paul says, I need you to come with me to Ephesus. So they were ministering together as a husband and wife team in Ephesus as well. Greet them, my fellow workers in Christ. Greet Junia. Greet Junia, who was outstanding among the apostles. The apostles of the first century church were the primary leaders of getting the new covenant church off the ground and going. And Paul says that the female Junia is outstanding among them. Now, we don't know if he was calling, was he calling Junia an apostle? We don't know. But he certainly is saying she was outstanding among the apostles who were leading, speaking, teaching Junia. All of this empowerment from Jesus and Paul, is related to partnering in gospel mission, which certainly included speaking, teaching. What I hope to show you today is that, is that, is that what was happening for Paul and Timothy, it was an anomaly for him because of where the church was. They're in this terminal state of crisis. Um, and it was, it's different than the other things that he said. And uh, we have to... We have to to think about that and talk about that and have conversation around that as we look at this passage. Um, there's an um, author, um, teacher, writer, theologian. Uh, he teaches at uh, Wheaton College in Chicago. His name is Gilbert Bilzekian. He wrote a book called uh, Beyond Sex Roles. When he looks at this passage, here's his process of observation, correlation, application, like as he has studied it, Here's where he lands on this passage. He says, given Paul's record on female role issues, this prohibition, and it was, it was a clear teaching prohibition. It was. This prohibition seems oddly discordant with the rest of his teaching. The restrictions Paul laid down in this epistle were temporary measures of exception designed to save this particular church from disintegration. Now, you may not agree with his interpretation. I do, and our leadership team does. And so we embrace women as leaders and teachers alongside men here at Two Rivers Church. Uh, and I want to just talk with you about that. Uh, again, I say this humbly. Uh, you need to do the work. Like, you need to do the work in the reading and the studying. Um, but I want to be clear about where we land with conviction around this passage. I agree with Dr. Belzekian. But what I want to say is if, if, you, if you don't agree with him, uh, that necessitates you to take the entire context in its context. And so I want to speak to you about that for just a minute. If what Paul tells Timothy is prescriptive for all time, we must embrace the whole context as prescriptive for all time. What, what, what do I mean by that? You can't take verses 8 and 9. You've got to pray with your hands up. No more arguing, dis disputing. Uh, no more braids, ladies. No more gold. No more expensive clothing. Like that, That's clear exhortation in those verses. 
So you can't take verses 8 and 9 as descriptive of cultural packaging and then take the very next verses as prescriptive and timeless for all time. If we're going to take verses 11 and 12 as timeless, we must also take verses 8 and 9 as timeless too. That's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like we can't, you can't cherry pick one verse as prescriptive for all time and then another verse in the very same paragraph as descriptive. That would be bad hermeneutics. So, prescriptive for all time. Men should pray lifting up our hands. So when I pray at the end of this service, bros, get them up. And if you're like, nope, I don't like to raise my hands in church, I don't care. Paul said to do it. Right? I'm having some fun right now. I, I recognize that. Um, ladies, everyone, go ahead. Bring up your gold right now and unbraid your hair. I see some braided hair out there. Okay? Here's the thing. I don't know of any church refusing braided hair, wearing gold, and expensive clothes. Do you? Do you know anywhere like that? I don't. I don't know of any church requiring men to lift holy hands when we pray. Do you? So, I'm just saying, if you take one in the, you got, you can't, are y'all with me right now? That's, that's, that's what I'm inviting you to consider. That's what I'm inviting you to consider. We're coming to this passage through the lens of cultural packaging. We think it's descriptive. There are some prescriptive things in there that I'll talk about. Uh, but I want to just walk, walk you through my conviction and our conviction as a church family around this for your consideration. Um, and these conversations, I'll just say, they're much better one-on-one. -on -one. If you've got questions, uh, hold on to the email, maybe. <laughs> hold on to the email. Just like, let's just have coffee. Let's just have coffee. Or an IPA at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm, I'm good with either one of those, Okay. 1 Timothy 2.11, this is a clear exhortation from Paul to Timothy. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. What most people miss here is that Paul is radically affirming a woman's right to learn and be a disciple of Jesus. Patriarchal Judaism, women had very few rights. They were forbidden to speak in the assembly of God's people. You know something like, mind-blowing that Jesus did in his ministry, uh, that scene where um, Mary was busy in the kitchen and Jesus was teaching. Remember Mary's sister Martha? What was she doing while Mary was in there? And Mary was so frustrated at her sister. What, what was Martha doing? Remember? Mary, that's right, that's right, thank you. Martha was in the kitchen, thank you. Yes, yes, and blank, thank you. Martha was in the kitchen, Mary was at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus did not rebuke her. And because he did not rebuke her, everyone in the room got privy to this. She is my disciple, and she will learn. And she was in submission to the teaching of Jesus. It's a, it's a, it's a really like, if you don't know the culture of that day, you just read through, and they're like, oh, Martha needs to stop being such a busybody, and, but oh, it's such a beautiful passage. Jesus 
affirming a woman, her right to learn. Paul does the same. Listen, Paul, Paul's view when he was a Pharisee um, was Pharisaical, like misogyny. Right? And then he met Jesus, and Jesus renamed him, renamed Saul Paul, and everything got changed. And he says, learning quietness, which, by the way, if we want to look at this in context, it says quietness in verse 11 and quietness in verse 12, specific to women. If you go back in your Bible and you look at verse 2, it talks about men and women learning in quietness. You do a Greek study on that word quiet in verse 2 and quiet in verse 11 and quiet in verse 12, it's the same Greek word, all three, all three. So Paul had already told the men and the women to learn. When we, when we learn, it's just, it's, you, you can't learn something when you're not quieting yourself to listen and learn. And he's already told the men and the women in verse 2 and he's telling the women specifically in verse 11 and 12. Why? Because Paul is teaching Timothy, the, the new female Ephesian converts, what the proper position of learning was, quietness, which was so different than the cult of Artemis. Context, context, context. Learn in full submission. We, we, when we read submission in the text, oftentimes we have uh, this thought in mind. Uh, do you remember when you were a kid, like if Jeff or you and I were going to play that kid, do you remember when we'd, we'd come down and you'd put your hands in mine? Right now? And it's like, ready, go. You remember that game? Did you play that? Yeah. yeah. Did anybody else play that game? Who won, the ge- who won that game? The one who, the other one submitted, right? Ah, they tap, they tap out. And I think sometimes we have, when we see the word submit in the scripture, we have that thing in mind, but that's not what it means. That's not what it means. The idea here is that a learner, a disciple, is submissive unto a teacher whom they trust and respect and honor. It was so important for new converts, especially coming out of the cult of Artemis where women were in full authority. Submission is related to trust, honor, respect. All good things. All good things for new converts to learn. Men and women. But specific to women, in verse 11, Ephesus, cult of Artemis. Verse 12. A woman should learn in quietness. Or I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority uh, over a man, she must remain quiet. Um, women should not teach in Ephesus right now, period. That's what Paul is saying. And so we come to this verse, we have to take in all, into account all that Jesus had said and did, all that Paul had said and did, in order to gain clarity on what Paul is saying here in our passage. Why? Because context is king and scripture interprets scripture. Now, Interpretation. I don't believe that Paul is making a blanket statement here that is timeless for all time in every church forever until Jesus comes back. If so, if so, my position, my conviction is that if that's true, then Paul certainly contradicts himself in other places that we've already mentioned. Paul is not against fashion. Paul is not for oppressing women. 
The reason he says in verse 9 not to wear braided hair, expensive clothes, and gold and pearls is because those things are associated with the prostitution inside the cult of Artemis. He's leading them away from that cult. And if you look at the whole passage together, you see the cultural realities that Paul is addressing, both in how they dress and in how they learn. Don't clamor to be a teacher. Don't clamor for authority. First, you must submit yourself and learn, and learn in quietness to a teacher. Paul is teaching Timothy, leading Timothy, how to love and lead men and women who are now Jesus followers away from pagan polytheistic cults. Paul and Timothy are dealing with a specific problem. Chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, false teaching in a specific place surrounded by a pagan cult. And so for me, and for us at Two Rivers, in light of the cultural context of the city of Ephesus, and in light of Jesus' and Paul's overall treatment and empowerment of women, we can understand our passage today as something that is not prescriptive for every church everywhere for all time, but was specific to a church that was in terminal crisis that Paul is looking to help Timothy save. Application. Bill Zekian again. He says, the core of Paul's strategy was the elimination of all unqualified or defiant would-be teachers, both male and female. He'll get to the males in the next chapter. There's a lot of things about men who are leading in chapter 3. So that the church's teaching ministry would be carried out and approved by faithful people. Thus, neither women nor, nor all men. Thus, neither women nor all men could teach in Ephesus, but only a group of trained and carefully selected Individuals who were gifted, called, had the character, the integrity, and the affirmation of the church people to lead them forward in the way of Jesus. And the same is true today. The same is true today. I, um, I prayed, and I have prayed, and I will pray that this is encouraging, encouraging, equipping, empowering for you, whether you are male or female, I recognize, too, that this could be challenging, uh, that there, you may not agree, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, but I hope it's been encouraging, equipping, challenging for you to, to think deeply about important, important things. And not salvific things, but important things. Um, and so, on the day of, that we celebrate our 10-year anniversary as a church family, um, greet, greet Lindsay Swain, who is outstanding among the pastors. You see, when we moved here 10 years ago, we came here as co-pastors. I was like, I'm not doing this by myself. And the Lord had convicted me of where, where, I'm, where I'm teaching you way before this. And so we came as co-pastors. And I will tell you that Lindsay is outstanding among the pastors. Um, she does not have a, um, a sense of calling and gifting, nor desire in any way, shape, or form to stand up here and do what I do week after week after week. 
But I will tell you, there is one person in my life that has taught me the way of grace, who has shepherded me and taught me grace, and it is Lindsay Swain. And much of what I teach on grace is because she has shown me the way. So we teach. We teach you in the way of grace. I am the mouthpiece, but we teach. Greet Sarah and Becca and Laura, gifted servants and leaders of Two Rivers Church, deacons, ministers, gifted, called. Greet them. Greet Jody, who preached last week. She is outstanding among the teachers of God's word. If you're a woman in this room and you feel a sense of calling, a sense of gifting to shepherd, to teach, to lead, I believe that Jesus does not restrict you, but he empowers you. The way he empowered Mary Magdalene and Martha and Joanna and Susanna and the woman at the well and so many others. And I believe that Paul empowers you as well, like Junia and Iodia and Syntyche and Phoebe and Priscilla and many others because we need the full gifts of this body to lead us into the next 10 years. We need the women and we need the men and we need to do it together. We need all the gifts that God has done in all of you to strengthen and build up this church and to reach more people in our city that God has called us to be witnesses to. We need us. Not half of us. All of us. Amen? Would you pray with me? Um, Lord, challenging passage, and we come to it humbly as we seek to observe and to correlate and to ask questions and to bring application from something that was written from Paul to Timothy in Ephesus and in there to how we make sense of that here and now. Um, Lord, I pray that your word would be living and active in our lives, it would be transformative in our minds, Jesus, and that it would encourage us, equip us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we, as the people of God, would be thoroughly equipped for the work that you have put before us so that more people might know that you are the Savior and that your grace is abundant and that you love us and that you are coming for us and that you rescued us by your blood. We celebrate the gospel and all of us, to all of us, through all of us, for more to know, for more to know the hope that we have. In Jesus' name.